Will you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, Exodus 4. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And as they do, if you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one to you. That is marked at Exodus 4. It's easy to find, just the second book in your Bible. As we continue our series, Portraits of Grace, and we continue our series looking at God's portrait of grace in the life of his servant Moses, and we'll conclude our look at Moses with this message. Several years ago, my wife Kim was meeting with a woman from church who had asked to get together to discuss some relational difficulties she was experiencing. Now, don't worry, it's nobody here. It was nearly 20 years ago, long before this church was started. But that meeting had a lasting effect on that sister because she later recounted to me what happened. She said that when she met with Kim, she went on for about 30 minutes about the situation and the people involved and how she saw it, but they saw it different and how she was acting appropriately and they were not. And Kim hadn't said anything up to that point, but when she finally did, the woman told me Kim looked at her and said, what about God? And Kim went on to point out to her that she's behaving as a practical atheist. Now, that means you don't want to counsel with Kim if you want comfort, okay? (laughs) Actually, the practical atheist part is my phrase, not, not hers. You know what a practical atheist is? Yes, I believe in God, but just not Monday through Saturday. Yes, I trust God. I trust God in the abstract, just not in my very real circumstances. So I want each of us to think about the thing you worried about most this week. And let's ask ourselves, what about God? For some of you, God is not a regular player in your life, and certainly not the most important factor as he desires and deserves to be. But others will say, Pastor, believe me, I pray every day that the situation or the person, as the case may be, will change. Now, let me translate that for you. Every day, I give God my agenda, and I ask Him to implement it for me. I've gotten in the habit of asking husbands and wives who seek counsel, so what is it you want for your spouse rather than from your spouse? I mean, isn't that normally the way it is? We see the problem, and we need or want something from the other party, and we don't think about what we want for the other party because we're not thinking first, what about God? And that question, then, what do you want from rather than what do you want, or what do you want for rather than from, immediately moves our attention from our agenda to God's agenda. And the reason that many of us are not growing in faith is because our mantra really is, no matter how baptized, what about me, rather than what about God? We do indeed baptize what we say in Jesus' talk. You know, I just want him to be a spiritual leader. I just want her to be a godly wife. I'll make progress when they get it together or this situation is resolved. But let me me ask you this, friends. What if they never get it together? 
And do you know that there are some situations this side of heaven that are not resolved the way we think they ought to be? Or what if they do, or that situation is resolved, and then there's someone or something else, as inevitably there is going to be? So in every circumstance, God has you there to learn to trust Him. To trust Him to resolve it in the best way, which may indeed not be my way or your way. And until you learn that lesson, where you are, you will not move to where you should be. Now, when last we left Moses, he was living in the fields of Midian, having fled the anger of Pharaoh after Moses had killed an Egyptian. He's now been in hiding for 40 years, and we saw last week that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him in an unburning bush. God told Moses he wanted him to go back to Egypt, and Moses objected And he objected due to his fear, or to put it another way, he feared Pharaoh more than he trusted God. Or to put it yet another way, he trusted Pharaoh more than he trusted God. He believed Pharaoh would make good on his promise to kill him. But he doubted whether God would make good on his promise to protect him. And God had used 40 years in Midian as a humbling preparation for Moses to receive the revelation at the unburning bush. And yet Moses was still not quite ready. So God gave him additional encouragement to move him from fear to courage, and ultimately that worked. The author of Hebrews tells us this, By faith Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. And I pointed out to you last week that that might seem like a contradiction. In fact, when he left the first time, that was the very reason he left. He was fearing the king's anger, but he left a second time because, as we're going to see, he ultimately did go back to Egypt, and then the exodus occurred. And that story, like all of the stories that are included in God's Word, are so included for our encouragement. Your New Testament says everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, Moses is 80 years old when the Lord appears to him. He lived to be 120, so the last 40 were the exodus, the confrontation with Pharaoh and then the wandering in the wilderness. He's 80 years old. Let me just say to my friends in the friends group, and I'm over 50 now, so I'm, I'm part of that. I keep trying to get them to move the age of the friends group up. When I get to be 80, it'll be 90 and then 100 and Moses was 80 when the Lord appeared to him. Moses still had things to learn. And let me say to to each of us, myself included, until the day the Lord calls us home, we have things to learn. And we are not a people who say, I'm set in my ways. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's true of dogs and tricks, but not of God's people who are made in his image. And the purpose of this continuing education for Moses is for him to develop the courage for the upcoming confrontation he's going to have with the king of Egypt. And it's also for lessons that will be needed in the journey to the promised land. And so this morning we're going to see that God showed himself to Moses and then to the Hebrews who were captive in Egypt. 
He showed them, himself to them in a way that was designed to move them from asking. But what about Pharaoh? But what about the Egyptian army? But what about food and shelter? Instead, he wants to bring them to the point that they would say, Now what about our God? Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to move to that place as well. Father, thank you for letting us be here. So many things that have to happen for us to be at this appointment, at this time, and all of them are by your hand. So we thank you for the health, the safety, and the desire to look into your word. And now, Lord, grant us open hearts and attentive minds so that we will be able to apply what you have taught us in your word to glorify you with our lips and our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I've asked you to turn to Exodus 4. In the very first verse, after God has given instructions to Moses about in the unburning bush, this is what I want you to do. First verse of chapter 4, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Now, the Lord is still speaking to him in the unburning bush account of chapter 3, and he had told Moses to go to Egypt and first speak with the Israelites and relay to them what he had heard from God. And Moses then asks what might seem like a reasonable question. Well, what if they do not listen to me? After all, I've been away for 40 years. Sounds like a reasonable question until you remember what God had already told him. When God was speaking to him out of the unburning bush in chapter 3, notice what God said to him in verse 18. The elders of Israel will listen to you. So now here's Moses saying, but what if they don't listen to me? God says in verse 18, they will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Moses is not going to move from where he is to where he should be until he learns to trust God more. And Moses has already raised some objections in chapter 3, and now he is still throwing up more roadblocks. Five objections in all. Moses presents to the Lord. The first one is, but who am I? Back in chapter 3 and verse 11. And the second one is, and who, by the way, are you? Who am I going to say sent me? I am that I am, chapter 3 and verse 13. And then he says, chapter 4 and verse 1, but what if they don't listen? And God has already promised that they will. And then he's going to go on in chapter 4 and verse 10 to say, but you know, I really can't talk. I'm just no good at this. And then finally, finally, he gets to what he's been angling for all the time. Verse 13 of chapter 4, you know, just send somebody else. And so here is Moses. God has been preparing him, but he obviously still needs more education. So God does with him what he does with us. He gives him ample reason to trust him. And so I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, please take a look at that if you don't already have it. 
that in order to grow in grace, we must have three things. The first one is this, faith in God's ability. Now, you would think that what God had already done would be enough, right? I mean, he's spoken directly to Moses in in a bush that's on fire but isn't burning up. Yet, in effect, Moses says to God this, Look, I I know I'm talking to you in a bush that's on fire and not not being consumed. And I'm not being sacrilegious. It's just, I mean, this is the gist of it. So clearly, you've got skills. But it's not what I've seen you do. I'm good with what I've seen you do. It's what I've not seen. And in effect, he's saying to God, you need to prove yourself to me in every new situation. Think about that. And dear friends, that is what we often say, if not with our words, with our hearts to God. I'm good with what you've done, but I'm not so sure I can trust you with what needs to be done. You have to reprove yourself to me with every new situation. And God says, in effect, to Moses, so you're telling me that I can't control the things I made? I mean, I made you. So I can help you to do what I'm telling you to do. And by the way, I made Pharaoh. And so I can control Pharaoh as well. So you don't think I can control the things that I have made. And so he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 4 to say this. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these signs, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And that, in fact, is the first of the ten plagues that were brought upon Egypt, the river turn to blood. They will believe, the Israelites will believe, and ultimately my purpose will be accomplished with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians and with my people. And so in order for us to grow in grace, we must develop greater trust, greater faith in God's power. And God has all power over his creation. God has all power over his creation. We must have faith in God's ability. That includes his, I say in your outline, power. Now remember back in chapter 3, God said to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So God is making sure now with this, with the, the demonstration of these three signs, two that he performed, one that he will perform, that when I send you to Pharaoh, when I send you to Egypt, 
It will go exactly as I have designed because I have the power over my creation, including my creatures, including Pharaoh and all of Egypt and everything else. And when he says in chapter 3, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. It's literally, now try to follow this. The king of Egypt, at the end of verse 19 of chapter 3, will not let you go Unless a mighty hand compels him, it's he will not let you go, and this, and not by a strong hand. The king of Egypt will not let you go, literally, and not by a strong hand. What does that mean? It's referring to Pharaoh's hand. He will not let you go, but even his not letting you go will not be by his hand. His not letting you go is still my purpose, to harden him, to fulfill my ultimate purpose. So in ancient Egyptian texts, they often speak of Pharaoh in terms of his strong hand, his being the possessor of a strong arm and the one who destroys enemies with his arm. So Pharaoh will not let you go in order to demonstrate his own sovereignty. That's his motivation. And he will not be able to let you go until I allow. And so verse 20 of chapter 3 says this, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And when it says in verse 20, I will stretch out my hand, and then at the end, he will let you go, that's the same verb. And so the idea is this. God will stretch out his hand so that Pharaoh will then stretch out his. Pharaoh will stretch out his arm and ultimately let you go, but not by his strong arm, but by me strong-arming him. The first action, God stretching out his hand, is the cause of the second one. And so, Moses, you go. This is the power that I have. I've shown you these signs. I will show you wonders still more. But you go. Now, where is he telling Moses to go? Egypt, yeah. But when and to whom? Let me give you just briefly a little bit of background. This is all taking place in the 15th century B.C. The exodus out of Egypt occurred in the year 1446 B.C. How do we know that? Here's how. If you care to jot down 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings 6.1. And 1 Kings 6.1 says that the Israelites left Egypt 480 years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Well, that's easy. Solomon began to reign in 970 B.C. The fourth year of his reign would be 966 B.C. And 480 years before that, if you do the math, is 1446 B.C. And so because of 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1, we know when this was happening. And because we know when this was happening, we can know who the Pharaoh was that was angry with Moses and from whom he fled to Midian and who the Pharaoh is that he's now going to need to confront. The pharaoh that he fled from was Pharaoh Thutmose II. And by the time of the end of the 40 years in Midian, Egypt had a new pharaoh. The pharaoh of the Exodus, the one whose heart God hardened, was one named Amenhotep III. Amenhotep III, not Ramses. Now, if you've watched Yul Brenner, you know Yul Brenner is, is Ramses. But Ramses was a pharaoh a few hundred years later. The Bible tells us in Psalm 105, in Psalm 105, by the way, if you're somebody who's new to the Bible, 
just read Psalm 105. And Psalm 105 just gives you a history of what God did in that one psalm uh, with, his, with his people and the patriarchs. And Psalm 105 says this, The Lord brought out Israel out of Egypt laden with silver and gold. Egypt was glad when they left <laughs> because dread of Israel had fallen on them. In between the time that Moses is throwing up these obstacles and God accomplishes what he had promised to do, by the time God was finished, they said, please go. We can't take any more. Ask what you will. Take it with you. At the end of, of chapter 3, verse 21, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people. So that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. God is showing his, is going to show and did show his power. And Moses and the Hebrews need to see that yet, yet again. And by the time God was finished with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the people in Moses were highly regarded in Egypt. They were downright fearful of them. And so they were favorably disposed to give so that they simply said, now go. Now, I'm going to briefly rehearse in just a bit the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt. And I want to rehearse those because each one of those ten plagues was an attack, a direct attack by God, the true and living God, on the gods or goddesses of Egypt. So when, Moses says, when God says to Moses, I'm sending you now to show my power, yes to the Egyptians, yes to the Hebrews, and, and yes to you, that is going to be in a confrontation with the gods and the goddesses of Egypt. Let me go through them quickly. In order in which they occurred. The river turning to blood, the Nile. A direct attack on Knum, the god who was the guardian of the Nile. And Osiris, the god of the underworld, and the Nile was said to be the stream of his blood. The Nile was considered sacred then by the Egyptians. The goddess Neith was the protector of fish. And so when God turns the Nile to blood, it's a direct affront to these gods and goddesses. Frogs. Frogs everywhere. Now, in Egypt, frogs like just about everything were considered sacred. Cows, insects, bulls, fish, you name it, frogs included. They had deified animate and inanimate objects. They're, they were so polytheistic that it's impossible, say historians, to count how many gods and goddesses they had. And so frogs were considered sacred. Related to the Nile, because the Nile would ebb, and then it would, when it would recede, when it would overflow, it would be the river of life, because it would fertilize for vegetation. Otherwise, Egypt would have just been a completely barren desert. And then when the waters of the Nile would recede, there would be these frogs everywhere. And so when the waters of the Nile would recede, it would expose these, these frogs, and they were considered sacred, and it was considered a great blessing to hear them. Making their, making their noise because it was a sign that the gods who provide these frogs and who protect the Nile had done what they're supposed to do. 
Two gods in particular, Hapi and Hecht, were the gods of frogs in Egypt. And God produced so many of these that these things that were previously considered a blessing were now a nuisance and worse. And then the third was dust that turned to, to gnats. In the King James, in some versions it says lice. It's not lice, it's, it's gnats. The Bible doesn't give us directly which god or goddess this is an attack against, but in all likelihood, it is an attack against the religious system, and particular, the priests of the Egyptian religious system. And here's why. They, were, they had purification rites. They were meticulous about keeping themselves completely clean. And God now sends them a, a plague that no one can escape, including these priests. And then there's the fourth plague of flies. And one of the gods, Uakit, was symbolized by, of all things, a fly. The sixth plague of domestic animals and the death of domestic animals. There was in Egypt the sacred bull of Ta. The cow was a symbol of another god, Hathor, which was the goddess of love and joy and, and beauty. Archaeologists have found burial sarcophagus, sarcophagi, that uh, contain some of these sacred bulls. And they are laden with gold, and they, some of them weigh 60 tons. That's how revered were, was the bull. And so God gives a plague of the death of domestic animals and then boils. And there was a god in Egypt, Serapis, who was the god of healing. And another god who was the god of medicine, Imhotep. And then hail and fire. Coming from the sky is this, this hail, destroying crops. And there's the sky goddess, Newt. And Isis and Seth were to protect the crops. And likewise with the eighth plague, the locusts, Isis and Seth are exposed for the frauds that they really were. The ninth plague, darkness. One of the greatest gods in Egypt was that of the sun god, Re. And darkness showed the power and the impotence of Ray. And then the tenth plague, death, exposed the impotence of Pharaoh himself as his own son's life was taken. Now, all of those plagues took place in all likelihood in just under a year. So on average, about once a month, you got one of these things coming at you. And the plague should all be a lesson to Israel of the futility of idolatry. Am I right? I mean, if, this, if God is one by one attacking the gods and goddesses of Egypt, then by the time this is finished, surely Israel understands the futility of idolatry. Ah, but remember what they did. These are the people of the golden calf. Friends, when we don't trust God, we think somehow that God has left us with an inadequate witness. If God would just somehow talk to me, if God would appear to me, if God would just show me. But the history of God's dealings with humanity says just the opposite. People can see the power of God, they can see the power of God and experience the power of God over and over and over again and still allow unbelief, even in a short period of time, to creep back into our hearts. You all remember Jesus' story of 
Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man lifts up his eyes in hell and he speaks to, uh, and he speaks, uh, to Abraham. And this is what uh, Luke 16.31 tells us. He says, just go to my brothers and show them the sign. And then this is what the Bible says. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I'm here to tell you, dear friend, that God Almighty has shown you and me His power over and over and over again. That He can absolutely be trusted. And therefore, we should get, lose the idea that we need God to do something further in order for us to move forward in our faith. And we will not move forward until we learn to trust Him. God has power over His creation. We must develop faith in His ability. He has power over His creation. But I say secondly, and more quickly, God has authority over His creation. You say, aren't those the same thing, power and authority? No. Power means you can do something. Authority means you have the right to do it. It means you're authorized. And so, you know, if, uh, if the army... Thanks, thankfully, we don't live in that kind of country, at least now. But, you know, the army in some countries can just bust down your door and say, come outside and we're going to search you without a warrant or any of that. If the police or anybody else did that, they have the power to do that. They might come in with a bunch of people and they might come in with a bunch of guns. They've got the power. They've got the ability. But they don't have the authority. They don't have the authorization. Now, have you ever considered this? Who authorizes God? What God does is by definition right. Because he is the authority. And so he will harden whom he hardens. And he will give mercy to whom he will give mercy. That is the God you serve. That's the God I serve. That is the God who was showing himself to Moses and the Israelites. If we are going to grow in grace, we must trust God, have faith in his, in his ability. Secondly, in your outline, we must have faith in his knowledge. And of course, no one here is going to argue with the proposition of the first point under that. God has knowledge of all things. And if you, are a, if you are a theist, just a theist, not even a Christian, then in all likelihood you'll agree with that statement. If there is a God, and He truly is God, then He, then he knows all things. But for our purposes, the second point is especially poignant. God has special knowledge of His people. And that's one of the things that He is, in addition to His power, pointing out to Moses and to the Hebrews. I know everything, but I in particular have special knowledge of you. And my affection and my focus is particularly set upon you. Everything else I know is ancillary to what it is I'm doing in and through and for you. God has special knowledge of his people. So Moses, in chapter 4 and verse 1, says, but what if they don't listen to me? Chapter 3 and 8, verse 18, God had already said they will listen to you. And so here's Moses saying, listen, I, Moses, know what they're going to say. God, you don't know these people. Now you think about that. 
Think about your stuff. Think about your situation. Think about your relationships. And God says, this is how I want you to behave in that. This is how I want you to respond in that. But you don't know. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that counseling people. But you don't know my wife. Yikes. You don't know my kids. You don't know my boss. You don't know my situation. Does God know any of that? And in effect, that's what Moses is saying. I know what they're going to say. You don't know these people. In chapter 3 and verse 19, remember, says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. He will not let you go, and it won't be by his hand that he doesn't let you go. Verse 20, I'll stretch forth my hand, and then he will do that. And why will he do that? Because he has a special, intimate relationship and knowledge with his people. And that is why God, over and over and over again, including in his dialogue with Moses, reminds Moses that I am the God of your fathers that has a relationship with the descendants of Abraham, and you are one of those descendants, and you are the Hebrews, and you are my people. You are my special people. So going all the way back to Genesis 15 then, the Lord said to Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. So before this ever happened, (laughs) this whole thing in Egypt, God had already said this is going to happen. You're my people. I know how long it's going to happen. And then when the time is up, then I will stretch forth my hand, and you will come to the land that I have given to you. And God goes on to say, The Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And then to his son Isaac, the Lord appeared and said, I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. I'll increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So I have a special relationship, a special knowledge of my people. And I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham and to Isaac. And then Genesis 35, to Jacob. God said to Jacob, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give to you. And I'll give this land to your descendants after you. Now that special relationship, because of this intimate knowledge that God has of his people, is seen at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them, and then the Bible tells us he appeared in an unburning bush and the story we've been considering. You see, all of this stuff God is doing with Moses, and all of this sending him to Pharaoh and to And to lead the exodus, this is all in keeping with the promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is all in keeping with his plan for his people. And God has a special knowledge of his people. He knows everything. But God knows in an intimate way his people. In fact, in scripture, the word to know is used of an intimate relationship, not just intellectual knowledge. And so when the New Testament speaks of the foreknowledge of God, it doesn't mean God just knew stuff beforehand. He knows everything beforehand, of course. 
When it talks about his foreknowledge, it talks, it, and, and, it, and it's related to his people, it's talking about the intimate knowledge, the intimate relationship that he has foreordained to have with his people. And he orchestrates all of the events of their lives around it. And so God's greatness is seen in his ability, his his power and authority, and in his absolute knowledge, and in particular, his focused knowledge upon his people. Now, that's all great, but one final question. Is this God who is great also good? Is this God who is able to do anything? Does he indeed do all things for the good of his people? And if you're going to move forward in trusting God, if you're going to grow in grace, you not only have to have faith in God's ability and faith in God's knowledge, but thirdly, you've got to have faith in God's goodness. At the end of chapter 3, as we've seen, God says, when I do these wonders in Egypt, wonders in Egypt and Pharaoh's hand is moved by me and he lets you go, You will ask for silver and gold, but I want you to notice the things they did not ask for. They did not ask for food. They did not ask for weapons and armor, cattle, and other things. Now, just stop and think about it. We're leaving Egypt. And the we is two million of us, by the way. So two million of us are leaving Egypt. Would you not be making a list of stuff we need? The Egyptians are saying, go, just tell us what you want. Well, we want everything. There's two million of us. But they ask for gold and silver that their sons and daughters can wear that show the might, the power of Yahweh who has plundered Egypt. But food and all that stuff, what are we going to do with that? What are they going to depend on? Psalm 105, again, says this. He, Yahweh, God, spread out a cloud as a covering and a fire to give light at night. They asked, and he brought them quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water gushed out like a river it flowed in the desert. You see, this God is not only great, this God is good. And this God readily supplies the needs of his people. And so in your outline, I say this. God is good, so we trust him. God is good, so we trust him. We trust him because, as we saw at the end of chapter 2, he hears their groaning. The Bible says at the end of chapter 2 that God remembered. doesn't mean that God had ever forgotten simply means that the time now, I have a lot of time that you're going to be in captivity and now that time is up and now I'm focusing my, my power upon the release from captivity of the Egyptians. God is good so you can absolutely trust him. And secondly, God is good so that's why we obey him. You know, ultimately, you know, God is not interested in obedience without allegiance to him. He's good, that's why I trust him. He's good, that's why I can obey him, even if I don't see the end of the path he has told me to go on. Because he's good. 
When Yahweh shows his mighty hand and the Israelites finally exited, his first commandment of the Ten Commandments to them is this. You shall have no other gods before me. (laughs) Seems like a logical one, doesn't it? After all that he's done to show the deities of, of Egypt as impotent, so have I taught you this lesson, my people? Have no other gods before me. But he prefaces that with this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm reminding you of my goodness so that you will trust me, so that you will obey me because this is who I am and I have shown you my good character. Now God did all of that in and through Moses and the Hebrews for our learning. As we conclude, I want to remind you that one greater than Moses has come. The book of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. And all that stuff Moses did, he only did because of the empowerment of Jesus, God the Son. And God the Son, Christ Jesus, has come. And has he shown you an exodus from slavery? Dear friend, have you experienced an exodus, an exit from from slavery to sin? You absolutely have because Jesus has broken the power of sin in your life. So you got to lose the idea. We got to lose the idea. God, you got to show me more. But what about this situation? What about this person? What about tomorrow? What about the thing I can't see? The question we all need to ask ourselves is what about God? And your take-home truth is this, that in order to grow, we must be focused on God rather than on ourselves, rather than on others, rather than on obstacles. So what should you do? We're going to pray. Get up every day. And entrust that day to the Lord. That day is a good day, even if it doesn't go your way. Because it's a day that the Lord has given, and you trust Him. Get up every day and entrust it to the Lord. And confess your weakness in trusting the Lord. Lord, I trust you. Help my lack of trust. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let me give you two other things. Read God's Word. Do you all read God's Word? Read God's Word because you read about people like us who needed to be fortified in their trust of God. And then do this. Surround yourself with people who are trusting the Lord. You and I need to be surrounded by people who are trusting God. Now, that only happens if you've got a relationship with God. And we really are going to quit. But there may have been some who came in today who came into this room without knowing God and God not knowing them in that intimate sense as one of his people that I mentioned earlier. So how is a relationship with God begun? You have to recognize who you are. and Who are you? You are a sinner. Who am I a sinner? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But who is God? Well, God the Son came to earth and did what you could not do. He paid the penalty 
that your sins deserve and my sins deserve on the cross. And so he died on the cross for you. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death that you deserved. And so you recognize that Jesus died for your sins and that death was absolutely, completely worth, had value for all of your sin, past, present, and future. Repent. Lord, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to follow you with my life. I'm not going to go my way, your way. And you pray to God, acknowledging those things. From your heart to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I give you my life. And now take me. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this sacred time. We thank you for this, as all lessons in your word, designed as warnings to us, but also as an encouragement, an example to us. Lord, we do ask you to forgive us again for our lack of trust in you who is is infinitely trustworthy. Lord, help us to be reminded of that and make good on that reminder this afternoon and this week. Help us, oh Lord, not to be practical atheists. And Lord, I pray for anyone who came into this place without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. I pray that they would receive him now, that your spirit would move upon their hearts, showing them their need, drawing them to out of the world and to yourself so that they can join this happy band of your followers, giving glory to you with our lips and lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.